morning. We haven't had a chance yet uh, to meet. I'm John, one of the pastors here at North Park. And as uh, Justin announced, at this time we are going to dismiss the third through fifth graders. We've got a special program for them. And uh, parents, if you're a guest, haven't signed in your kids, we just ask that you go with them so we know who's going to be picking them up. And then you can come back and join us unless you think their program looks more exciting. But no, we want to make sure everybody's checked in properly. So kids, just to the back, and then you're going to go down to the right there. Mr. Andy will meet you, and uh, you guys are going to go downstairs for a special program today. All right. So why are we dismissing the kids? Well, today we're going to talk about sex. That's why. But we're not dismissing them because sex is a dirty word. Actually, God created sex. It's very good. We're not dismissing them because when you talk about sex, it has to be uh, indecent or explicit. The Bible talks a lot about sex, but it's not that way. It uses terms like Adam knew his wife, and we know that means Adam knew his wife, right? So uh, Song of Solomon uses imagery and poetry. Uh, There's verses like chapter 7. It says, How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. I see uh, Jared and a couple other guys are writing these down, but... It's in the Bible. You don't have to make it up. <clears throat> your rounded thighs are like jewels. The work of a skilled craftsman. Your navel is as delicious as a goblet filled with wine. Your belly, ladies, is lovely like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. You're a tall and slim like a palm tree. I said I will climb up the palm tree and take hold of the branches. All right, so does anybody doesn't understand what's happening there? Right? But it's imagery, it's poetry. So to talk about sex doesn't have to be indecent or explicit. Um, you guys heard of the Babylon Bee? It's a satire site. Uh, when I work with uh, couples in premarital counseling, I'll have them read uh, together some of these verses. that don't. They're kind of humorous in our culture. Uh, in their culture, it wasn't uh, humorous. It was very romantic. And um, he sent me, Babylon Bee did a satire where their uh, Christian leaders put out a new translation of the Bible. It's called the Honest Living Translation. And after every verse in Song of Solomon, they added, if you know what I mean. (laughs) So, it was said, I said, I will climb up into the palm tree and take hold of the branches, if you know what I mean. But we did dismiss the kids because there's age-appropriate instruction, and uh, we respect the parents' role and how they want to approach these subjects uh, with their kids. So. Although I know there are some of you who maybe wish you too could have been dismissed just because it's uncomfortable for some of you. You wonder why we're going to talk about this in church. But it is a topic that we do need to talk about for a variety of reasons. Uh, TV, movies, video games, books, magazines, social media, online sites, and even our government. They promote it. Commercials advertise it. Hollywood glamorizes it. Our schools instruct in it. Parents often just tolerate it. And then often the church is silent about it. Or, as I read in the book recently, we have one of these two responses. One is just plain yuck. And that's just an emotional response that we're kind of disgusted by some of the things that we hear, read, or see related to sex or sexuality. And it's just wrong. But that's not really thought through very well. And it's an emotional response. There's a second response. Sometimes we just say yes. We want to be affirming. We don't want to be labeled as a bigot or somebody who's not inclusive. And so we, with the culture, say, well, that's who you are. We need to celebrate that. 
But we can't do that either. But that's an emotional response as well. It's not thought through very well. So as Christians, we really can't go along really with just either one of those reactions. We can't just say yuck and be disgusted with people who are involved in sexual sin. We need to remember that they're people made in the image of God and God loves them deeply. And so we need to show compassion in our response and have a desire for them to flourish. As Christians, though, we can't just respond emotionally. And so we want to go to the Bible and let the Bible tell us how we should think about and understand these issues. And when we do that, it definitely says that we should respond with compassion and gentleness and respect. But it also leads us to some convictions that are contrary to what a lot of people think and believe. And so we can't just say yes to all that the culture affirms either. So I want to say I know not everybody will agree with everything I'm going to say today. But I hope that you'll stay with us. You'll hear our heart. And this is an opportunity for us together to explore God's word and see what God has to say about these issues. It will express with the leadership here at North Park how we understand some of the teachings of the Bible and how it guides us in our responses to engage with people around these issues. And the context for this discussion for us is our current series that we're doing. We're in the middle of a series, or really this is part nine of the series, called Greater Than. We're looking at the book of Colossians. And Colossians was a book written to some brand new believers in the city of Colossae. So I'd like to remind you guys that the Bible is not just a book. It really is a library of books. And if you want to turn to the book of Colossians, you can find it down here in Paul's epistles, right in the middle of the book of Colossians. It is a letter that's written to new believers in the city of Colossae. If we go back to the map, see the boot of Italy over here in Rome. And if you're familiar with the Bible, all these are cities that you recognize. Uh, Paul was a missionary, traveled, made this uh, circular route uh, three different times. Uh, Jerusalem would have been down below Damascus over there, but Corinth and Thessalonica, Ephesus, and there's Colossae, about 55 A.D. Uh, Paul wasn't the one who started the church there. Uh, He had a co-worker named Epaphras. That was his hometown. And Paul is currently in prison simply for telling people about Jesus, helping to start other churches. And Epaphras gets an opportunity to go visit him, and he tells him about the church there and these new believers and a lot of the pressures that they're facing, religious beliefs or pressure about lifestyles, about how they could walk as Christians. So Paul writes the letter to say to them, Jesus is greater than any religious system. He's greater than any lifestyle, any philosophy, anything that you would try to add or take away from Jesus. And in chapters 1 and 2, we've already looked at, focuses on Jesus, the person of Jesus. And now we're into chapter 3, and then we'll look at 4, which really explore this new life that they have in Christ. Uh, If you've missed some of the ones from the past, you can go to our website and check that out. But we're at part 9. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 5. Let's jump in. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. He's got quite a list there, all related to sexual sins, that he says to them and to us that we are to put to death. We're to get these things out of our life. The first one, sexual immorality, is kind of a broad term that encompasses any sexual activity outside of marriage. We're going to look more closely at that in a little bit. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. 
that needs to be put to death. Uh, impurity has to do more with your internal thoughts. Uh, it describes your character. As you participate in things that are immoral, your character becomes impure, unclean. That needs to be put to death. Lust is an interesting word in Scripture. It actually is neutral. It is when you desire or want something, and the context determines whether it's a good desire or a bad desire. Here in this context, it's speaking about a desire for something that's sexual that is inappropriate. It's an undesired or uncontrolled desire. Evil desire is very similar but maybe a little more active. It definitely is desiring something that is not appropriate, something that's forbidden, and taking steps to get it. And then greed seems like maybe an odd thing to throw in there. We normally think of greed, and in other places in Scripture, greed is listed as related to material possessions or wanting money. But it's that idea of covetousness. We know in the Ten Commandments it talks about you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. So it's really just this idea of I want Something And I want something more, and I want it without regard for anybody else's rights or what's best for them. So I do think that's why it's here. It's related to this list of sexual sins. So all of those things, sexual sin, Paul says, you need to put that to death. It's not appropriate. It's part of your old life, and it doesn't fit your new life. But why would Paul write this to these new believers in Colossae? What was their world like? In the world of Colossae, in that Roman culture, people did marry, but your wife was really to help you have legitimate children. So you would have an heir to your family. For your sexual needs, you would have a mistress or a concubine. There was same-sex intimacy. There was certainly brothels and prostitution. And it doesn't even compute for us but part of temple worship for a lot of the pagan religions was temple prostitutes. It was thought that by that sexual union with prostitutes at the temple as part of worship, you connected with God in that way. There was pedophilia. And slavery was legal. And so a lot of that happened because kids and adults were property. And it wouldn't have been that uncommon for slaves just to be used for sexual indulgence. So this is the world that the Colossian believers are a part of. All of this would have been normal and very accepted. It was a culture of indulgence, of power, and of victimization. And this was a challenge for believers all throughout that area. Paul addresses similar issues in his letters to the church at Ephesus, at Corinth, Thessalonica, we just read a few verses from that, and here at Colossae. Now I want you to notice verse 7. <clears throat> As he writes to these, and again, almost all of these were brand new believers. The gospel had come, and this was the first generation of believers there. And he says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So what that says is that many of these people who are not Christ followers, they participated in some of those things that we just listed. That would have been their culture. That would have been normal. And now they've come to know Christ. And he says, so that was part of your old life, but... If we go back to verse 5, he also says this is something you have to continue to deal with now. In the present tense, he says, put to death these things, these sexual sins. And that reminds us that coming to know God, the moment that you put your faith in Christ and you repent of your sins and invite him into your life, that's an instantaneous experience. 
At that moment, you become a child of God. But learning the way of God and becoming who God has designed you to be, that's a process. And so in the church, it's a good reminder that we're looking for progress, not perfection. And so he says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Now, I don't know if you've ever put anything to death. I was uh, many years ago in our first home. Uh, it was dusk and then it got dark. And I happened to open the door. I forget what we were doing, but a bird flew in my house. At least I thought it was a bird. I later figured out it was a bat. I know Phil's talked a little bit about he doesn't like bats, but I really don't like bats. And so I was like, where did And then I couldn't find it. It got later. The kids went to bed. Then I felt like the man of the house. We can't go to sleep until I find this bat. I've got to protect my family. I couldn't find it anywhere. So I remembered somewhere that a good thing to do, though, was to have a tennis racket that the bats can't track that. And so maybe you could hit it with us. So I went downstairs looking for a tennis racket, and we didn't have one. Like, oh, man, what am I going to do? So I went, and I found... You know, the next best weapon to kill a bat is a toilet plunger, right? Everybody knows that. So we had this room off the back of the house. I turned up all the lights and I went and sat in this room and just waited. And then it got really late and I got drowsy. You know how you get in that stage where you're falling asleep? I dozed off. I opened my eyes and a bat went right by my face. And then he circled back. I've heard that, that he'll circle back and come at you. So here I am with my plunger. I, and he, he circles around. He comes at my head again. I swing. I swing again. And then I freaked out. I dropped the plunger, ran out and closed the door. Because I'm the protector of the home. So then I went to bed. I could sleep good. But then I was like, what am I going to do with this bat? How am I going to find it? So some of you know John Lopez. Now at the time, John and I went together. Went to church at a... Uh, same church, different place. I called him the next day, and John comes over. He brings his, like, fishing net. And I had called the Humane Society. And they said, well, the bat's asleep somewhere. It's daytime. You probably should find it and then cover it up, gently carry it outside, and place it underneath a bush. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. So John and I go in my uh, room. We open the door. We're looking all around. Can't find it. We had a ceiling fan with a decorative cover. And if you guys know, bats can really get into small areas. It was up inside the fan. John and I are like, wow, what are we going to do? So we got our gloves on. We got our net. We have to unscrew the uh, top to the, the fan there. And we start to let it down gently, and that thing wakes up. <laughs> so we're holding it. We freak out. We kind of get in that net, and we rush outside. Well, it's a fishing net. Those holes are huge. So... We carry it out. We're getting it down. It's getting out. We're trying to control it. And the next thing I know, John goes, <laughs> killed it, dead. And then we gently place it underneath the bush. All right? So I've not killed very many things either. But that bat was killed dead. It was not alive anymore. One of the commentators said about putting... Sin to death, he said, the old life is dead, now you must let it die. And we must help it die. Literally, the word here means to make dead. These sexual sins, we're to wipe them out, we're to exterminate them, we're to make the death to the old life real in everyday living. The New Living Translation adds this phrase, have nothing to do with 
these sounds. But this can be challenging, can't it? Got a boyfriend, girlfriend? Have a good goal of keeping the relationship with the proper boundaries. And over time, three months, six months, a year, they spend more time involved with each other physically. They begin to cross boundaries that they shouldn't. But it's exciting. It's part of this romantic relationship. And they love each other. It can't be wrong to express that love, can it? Paul said, put that to death. Have nothing to do with it. Pornography. Such an addictive type activity. You just harmlessly see something on a computer or on a phone and you do it once in a while and before you know it, it becomes a habit. And it's a habit that you want to stop. But you find yourself going back to it. And then it does, it's not really that bad a thing. It doesn't really harm anybody else. It's just me. Paul says, put that to death. Have nothing to do with it. What about adultery? You had a woman who's been married for 10 years, has a couple of kids. She married her college sweetheart. And now, just through the busyness of life and the everyday routine, the relationship has just grown stale. There's no spark there anymore. A month ago, she's just working on a project with a male co-worker, and all of a sudden she feels something she hasn't felt for years. There's a spark there. And it wasn't planned, but now there's an affair that's been started. Paul says, put that to death. Have nothing to do with it. And notice Paul's answer to dealing with these sins isn't harsh treatment of the body. That would be asceticism that we've talked about. It's not a long list of detailed rules. That would be the legalism that we've talked about. The answer is a life-giving relationship with Jesus that causes us to put to death these things that were characteristic of the old life. And they're not appropriate for the new life. So we do need to act differently, but we've also got to think differently. Last week, Pastor Phil helped us understand that Paul says, okay, you've died with Christ, you've been raised to walk in newness of life, so set your mind and your heart on heavenly things. So I want to talk about a couple of bigger picture ideas that we see in Scripture that will help us as we try to find practical ways to put to death these sexual sins in our life. The first one is just this, that God has a design for sex and sexuality. We'll view it this way, that everything inside this circle would be God's design for sexuality. And I want to share with you some thoughts from a guy named Christopher Yuan. He's a professor at Moody Bible Institute. He wrote a book called Holy Sexuality. So that's the term I'd like to introduce you to. God's design can be referred to as holy sexuality. And we see this idea in passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 that we read as we started the service. It says there that God's will for you is to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body. We can do that. And live in holiness and honor. That's the goal. So the goal isn't just to kill those things, get rid of it. The goal is to live holy, for our sexuality to be holy. Next verse. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. So notice this. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules. Now, the rules he's talking about are living within God's design. So if we reject those, and we say those are just old-fashioned, those are for different times. That's so simple and naive. If we reject those, or it doesn't fit how I feel or what my experience is or what I want, if we reject those, we're not just disobeying human teaching, but we're rejecting God. And for believers, we're rejecting God's instruction who gave us the Holy Spirit, who 
not treating it lightly at all, but the, the Holy Spirit's first name is Holy. His job is to make us holy. So this holy sexuality consists of two paths, Christopher Yuan says. The first is chastity in singleness. Now, chastity isn't a word that we use a lot now. I tried to look and see is there a more contemporary word that we could use, but it really is a good word. Chastity is more than simply abstaining from extramarital sex, but it conveys the idea of purity and holiness. So it would involve our thoughts and controlling those as well. So it's simply this. The Bible teaches that if you are single, then you should be sexually abstinent while fleeing lustful desires. That's holy sexuality. If you're single, you're abstinent, and you flee lustful desires. You say, well, why is sex such a big deal anyway? Why does God care so much about it? Well, if we go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, part of it is we need a bigger understanding of what sex is. Okay? Genesis chapter 2, um, God has worked with Adam. Adam uh, is the only human being alive, but he's given him a task to name the animals, and the animals are all coming by in pairs, and he's going like, oh, they have someone that's like them. And God helps him understand that it's not good that he's alone, so he says, I'm going to create a helpmate for you, a helper for you. So you have someone like you, and you can accomplish this work that I've given you to do. And so he gives them Eve. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Some of your translations say they become one flesh. So God's design is marriage, and sex is the sign of that marriage covenant. It's literally a physical picture, but it's also a representation of two people becoming one. And every time that a married couple has sex, then, it's a sign of the renewal of that covenant vow. And you go, what? I'm supposed to think about that every time I'm involved in that activity? Not necessarily, but that is the bigger picture of what sex is. So yes, it's enjoyable. Yes, it helps us to have kids. But it mirrors God's image of three being one as two become one, and it is a sign of a renewal of that covenant. So if you're not married, there's no reason for you to participate in a Activity that is the sign of the marriage relationship. Right? Does that make sense? That's what it is. So marriage is God's idea. One man, one woman who become one flesh. Now, if we think about the marriage part of it, Hebrews 13.4 says, Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. So the second path or second part of holy sexuality is that there's faithfulness in marriage. The first part, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And faithfulness encompasses emotional, physical, spiritual faithfulness and fleeing lustful desires as well. So if you're married, be sexually and emotionally faithful to your spouse while also fleeing lustful desires. This is what the Bible teaches about sex and sexuality. It's a holy sexuality. It's a sacred thing. That God has given us. And you see it in creation, as we looked at. When you come to the giving of the law with Israel, you'll see the same teachings. Jesus reaffirms it. Paul, as we're looking at now, teaches it. And the New Testament as well. When it comes to Jesus, this week I was doing some studying. I got a text from my daughter. 
She says, this is a really weird question, Deb, but there's a girl at work, and her and her boyfriend are having a discussion. They want to know if Jesus was a virgin. I almost made that the title of my sermon. But I didn't want to scare some of you beforehand. But it was a legitimate question. Was Jesus a virgin? I said, of course he was. Because the whole teaching of Scripture is that sex is for married people. And Jesus never married. But Jesus obeyed God always. So yes, Jesus was a virgin. And that's the clear teaching of Scripture. This is what the Bible teaches. Holy sexuality, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And some of us have experienced different sides of that multiple times. Up until age 22, I was single. And then for 32 years, I was married. And now I'm single again. When I'm single, chastity is my goal. When I was married, faithfulness was my goal. And some of you have been in and out of that status as well. All right, now, if this is God's design, anything outside of it is what we call sexual immorality. That's what we read in Colossians chapter 3. The word that's used there is pornea. If that sounds familiar, that's the word that we get pornography from. Pornea. It refers, it's kind of a catch-all phrase for any sexual activity that is outside of God's design. And so we've already seen that it involves, I'm going to use the word fornication. Some of your translations say that. That's what fornication is, sexual immorality. All right? So that's two people having sex outside of marriage. We've noticed that it involves impurity, lust, evil, desires, greed, or anything else of a sexual nature that's outside of that. If we look at some of the other texts in Scripture, it also would include adultery, which is sex with a married person that's not your spouse. It would include incest, which is sex with uh, immediate family members. Bestiality is sex with animals. And it does include homosexuality. A man with a man and a woman with a woman. And that is a very sensitive issue and very important one. So I want to talk about that one specifically. The first idea is it's holy sexuality. But then what do we do or how should we think about same-sex expression or intimacy? And what about those who identify at some level with the LGBT plus community. It's interesting the research that is coming out as they look at those who identify at some level in that community. If we go back to 2017, Gen Z is kind of early 20s and younger. 2017, about 10.5% identified at some level with the LGBT plus community. In 2021, it nearly doubled, up to 20.8. So almost one in five. Millennials, the generation uh, that was in front of them, 7.8 gone up to 10.5. So if it feels like things are changing, they are. What that tells us is almost one in five, 20% of people 20, in their 20s and younger identify at some level with the LGBT plus community. So what that means is someone here in the building listening today or someone listening online is very likely identifies themselves as part of that community. That means it's all of us 
probably know somebody who would identify themselves in that community. And you or whoever it is you know would say, but I didn't choose this. This is how I feel. This is who I am. And can I still be a Christian then? If I experience same-sex attraction and I love Jesus too, what do I do with that? So to help answer this question, I want to play a video. It's going to be about four and a half minutes long. And it's a guy whose name is Sam Alberry. A couple of things I need you to know about Sam. Sam began to have same-sex attraction. He's attracted to guys and not girls. Started in his teen years, and he still has that today. The second thing you need to know is Sam loves Jesus. He's actually a pastor of a church. Uh, was in England and now here in the United States. So I want us to listen to him describe how he has come to understand these things, and then we'll come back and point out some significant things about his experience and how that could help us. All right, so let's watch that. It'll be about four and a half minutes. I'm Sam Alberry. I live and work in Maidenhead, and I'm a church pastor. I'm a Christian because I know that Jesus died for me, that he rose again from the dead, that there's good reasons for for believing those things. I'm a Christian because the message of Jesus makes far more sense of of who we are as people and the way the world is than anything else I've ever come across. The church has been great with my whole issue of of same-sex attraction. Certainly the church I'm I'm a member of uh, have been supportive, they've been an encouragement, people are, are wanting to, to be a good friend. And I've also appreciated that it's not defined how they see me, it's not the lens through which they view me. So they, they've been great. I've not had any experience of Christians getting angry or rejecting me because of it. Most people haven't really battered an eyelid and have just sort of thought, well, we've all got our own issues, this is one of yours. I hope experiencing same-sex attraction, having to kind of wrestle with it. I hope it's made me a more empathetic character than I would have been otherwise. It's not always been easy. But I think going through that has helped me, I hope, to be a bit more patient with other people, to be a bit more understanding, I hope a bit more compassionate than I would have been. Being single actually has been a a real blessing. It's given me opportunities to do things I wouldn't have probably got around to doing if I was married or had children. And it's given me a, a capacity for friendship that I don't think I would otherwise have. And it, it means a lot to me to be able to have a wide range of friends and to be able to, I hope, be a good friend to others. Having same-sex attraction isn't always easy. Obviously, I'm experiencing desires that I don't want to have. And that is, at times, can be very, very painful. Uh, it can be quite frustrating. Um, there are times when it, it's made some friendships a bit tricky. And there are times, obviously, when, when singleness isn't much fun either. All the, the sort of opportunities and advantages of it, there are times when it would be nice to have my own family. I'm convinced what, what the Bible says on this issue is good because I'm convinced God is good. I'm convinced God is good because actually Jesus has shown his goodness to me in his, his death and resurrection. I see the goodness of his, his words in, in so many areas of, of life. The one who, who made me and knows me better than I know myself, is going to know what's good for me. The very best thing that God can do for anyone is to give them life in his Son. And the Christian life is all about Jesus. And for as long as God is offering a relationship with Christ to anyone, he is not 
anti-them. Uh, there are things God calls all of us to, to turn away from. There are things in, in all of our lives that we need to, uh, to rethink and to, to kind of give over to God. But actually knowing Jesus is, is what it is all about. And that is the greatest gift God can give us. And as long as that gift is being offered, and it is, God cannot truly be said to be anti-anyone. One of the things Jesus says that, that most, I guess, encourages me in this whole area, and I, I hope would encourage others in other areas too, is that Jesus said on one occasion that, that anyone who leaves uh, fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and homes and other things for him and for the sake of the gospel, even in this life, will receive a hundredfold in return. So although we have to give things up, to be Christian, although we have to turn away from certain things, leave certain things behind. Actually, we, we always, even in this life, receive far more back from Jesus than we ever give for him. And so, although there'll be certain kinds of relationships I'm, I'm not going to enter into as a Christian, um, I've received back from Jesus a whole wonderful other set of relationships. Um, Within the, you know, being part of a Christian community, being part of a church family, um, and so it's it's never a bad deal to follow Jesus. So in Sam's case, he's chosen that chastity and remain single. Um, it's not always the case. Uh, this week I read uh, the stories and listened to uh, two ladies who had same-sex attraction. And they're in what they call a mixed orientation marriage. God has given them desires to be married. They're married to men, but they still struggle with this attraction to women. But for many, it does require to be chaste, to be single. And you heard Sam uh, talk about that. Sam's journey of holy sexuality has led him to recognize that he is giving up something. But in his words, it's never a bad deal to follow Jesus. And that's the question. Are we willing to submit our sexuality even to the leadership of Jesus? Because Jesus is greater than anything that he would ask us to give up. So let me just uh, quickly share three things with you. Sam wrote a book. It's a really good booklet. It's called, Is God Anti-Gay? And I just want to highlight three things that I think will be helpful for us. Number one, your sexuality doesn't disqualify you from becoming a Christian. Many people who struggle with this when it comes to the church or when they hear the teaching of the Bible about sexuality, about same-sex attraction, say that they come to look at themselves maybe as damaged goods or maybe beyond God's reach. And that's not true. We are all sexually speaking messed up. We all have a sin nature. We all need God's redemption. And so this sin is no worse than any other sin. And can I just say then, we as a church, let's make sure we're not the one communicating that wrong message. Remember that your tone and what you say to people who are struggling or wanting to understand this issue really do matter. It communicates whether we are safe to talk to and whether we can be trusted. So that's the first thing. It doesn't disqualify you from becoming a Christian. Secondly, it doesn't define you. Now this is really tough because we live in a culture that tells us that our sexual feelings are who we are. That's our identity. It's equated with that. And we're encouraged to embrace our sexual feelings, to express them, to celebrate them, and other people should celebrate them 
as well. But our true identity as human beings is that we are created in the image of God. That image has been tainted and we all have a sin nature that has distorted even our sexual desires. But same-sex attraction doesn't have to be and shouldn't be the one lens through which your whole life is viewed. We must let the Bible direct our conversations. And we all are created in the image of God and we all can be recreated in the image of of Christ. That one issue, one struggle, doesn't have to be what defines us. Thirdly, there's a difference between being tempted and committing sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, and yet he didn't sin. So the temptation itself is different from committing the sin. In James chapter 1, James says, temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. If any of you are fishermen or hunters, enticed and dragged away is imagery of the the lure or the bait on the hook. The trap that's set for an animal. It looks good, but there's a hook in there. There's a trap in it. So the temptation in and of itself is not a sin, but if we give in to it, there is a hook in there that can drag us away. And these desires can give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it does give birth to death. But the temptation itself is different than committing the sin. So Sam and other Christians who are tempted by same-sex attraction, in and of itself, that is not sin. And in our Christian community, for those who don't struggle with same-sex attraction, it's helpful for us to understand the incredible challenge that it is for those who do. But it's also a challenge for us not to be hypocrites. Not to point out one particular sin or one particular group of people while we excuse ourselves or overlook other groups of people or other particular sexual sins. And that's why Christopher Yuan, the Moody uh, Bible Institute professor, wrote the book or came up with that term, Holy Sexuality. He came out of a gay lifestyle and he felt like he was always being pushed to choose. Are you heterosexual or homosexual? And he said, well, I'm holy sexual. I want to live out God's design For my sexuality. So the real issue is, is our sexuality surrendered to Jesus? And that's what I would ask you this morning. In following Jesus, is your sexuality surrendered to Jesus? And here's where I'd like to close then. Because as we've talked about this, probably some of you, this has just drug up a lot of pain or hurt. Past failures and struggles and sexual sins. Or maybe even current ones. And you might be feeling guilt and shame over this. And it's appropriate for you to do that, to experience that, if there is that sin there. But what matters is what you do with it. There might have been times when you haven't put sexual sin to death. Maybe times when you haven't had a have-nothing-to-do-with-it approach. So let's go back to Colossians chapter 3. Notice that he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature... Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Look at verse 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. These sins and any other sins, when they are a part of our life and we practice them with no regard for God's desire, it puts us in a position where we're under God's wrath. And His wrath is coming. There is coming a final judgment where we'll be judged on how we've lived our life. So what do we do with this sin? I don't know about you, but all mine fits in one little box. 
Not really. I'd need a bigger box if it was going to really represent it. But what do we do with this sin? What do we do with that shame and guilt that comes because we've not kept God's standards? Well, it's interesting. Paul brings it back to the gospel. You guys might have noticed when we look at verse 5 again. I've had covered up the last part of that verse. And some of you may have noticed or you're like, why is he not talking about the last part of it? Sexual sin, greed, which is idolatry. How is sexual sin idolatry? Because anything that we put in God's place becomes an idol. It can be our sexual desires. It can be our status. It can be just we want our independence. Whatever we put in place of God is an idol. And so what we like to do with our sin is we like to hide it and cover it up. We like to keep it a secret. We blame other people or we make excuses. We reject God and his plan. And we want to just cover it up. But down deep, we know that's not sufficient. We have that guilt and that shame. What do we do with it? Paul says it's idolatry. So what do you do in cases of idolatry? You take care of that sin. You acknowledge it. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says if we confess our sins. To confess is to say, okay, I'm not going to cover up, God. There it is. Let's agree that this is sin. This has fallen short of your design for me in the area of sexuality. Now, what do we do with it? We confess it, and God is faithful and just to forgive it. Because we're all broken and messed up. We all have sin in our life. But we are all so very loved by God. He sent Jesus to come and live in a human body. That's what chapters 1 and 2 are about. So that he could live our experience without sin. And then he gave his life on the cross, a sacrifice for us. And every time we come to him and ask for forgiveness, he forgives it. No matter how messed up it is. And not only does he forgive it, but then we get Christ's righteousness. And we are pure and holy in God's sight. So this is how we come to know God. We say, God, here's my life. I trade my sin for your righteousness. And we come into the family of God. This is also how we live the way of God. That when we sin and when we fail, we come back to what Jesus has done for us. And we confess it. And he forgives us every single time. And so whatever God would ask us to give up in order to have holy sexuality, it's worth it. Because we have a Savior who loves us and gave us life and forgives us. Every single time. So, if that's you and that's where you're at, this is how we move forward in dealing with our sexual sin. I just want to say this. If you've been sexually abused, you're not the person we're talking to when it comes to asking for forgiveness. In a room this size, people listening, some of you have been abused sexually. Whoever abused you is the one who needs God's forgiveness. It's not your fault. And I encourage you, if you haven't already, seek some help. And I know it can be hard to think that God cares and that he was there when it happened, but he does care. And there is hope. So seek help. Jesus is greater than, is what it amounts to. Greater than. And we need to give even our sexuality to him and surrender it to him. For some of you, this has brought up past hurt and pain. For some of you, you're wrestling with desires. And for some of you, you still have very deep questions. 
You've listened to what we've said, but there's still a lot of questions that you're struggling with. So I just want to simply encourage you to find somebody to talk to. Have a conversation or pray together with a friend or in a relationship. Talk with a trusted friend. Talk to one of our ministry leaders. Talk to a pastor or an elder. We have biblical counseling that's available here at the church. You can contact us. And if you're listening online, if you'll contact us, we'll help get you connected to the right person. We want North Park to be a church that stands on God's word, unapologetically, no questions. But we also want North Park to be a place where anyone can come and experience God. They can choose to follow Christ. And then along with all the rest of us, struggle to determine what it means to surrender our life and our sexuality to Jesus. I pray that God will transform each one of you, each one of us, and all of us collectively so that we can be the church that God desires us to be. Let's pray. God, would you meet us there in our desires? Would you cause us to surrender our life and our sexuality to you? God, would you shape us as a church to reflect the character of your son, Jesus, for whom we are so thankful for? He genuinely is greater than anything and anyone else that we could be offered. God, would you be glorified in our lives? Help us to hate sin and put it to death. Help us to pursue you and pursue holiness. For your honor and glory, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.